This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. I remember when I was a kid that vaccinations were something everyone went through. They were kind of ouchy, but you didn't really think all that much about them, especially if the nurse gave you a lollipop afterwards, which she usually did. These days, though, vaccines are very much on our minds, whether we're searching for a vaccine for the HIV virus, debating over whether it's appropriate to require school kids to get certain vaccinations, or trying to figure out who's going to be the first to get the new H1N1 swine flu vaccine, or even just this year's flu shot. But once we have vaccines and we want to administer them, how can they best serve us? It's not surprising that we have certain expectations about who are the most important people to vaccinate. But are those expectations actually likely to yield the best results and to prevent epidemics from taking hold? Here today to talk about these tricky questions is Troy Tacey. Tacey is an associate professor of economics at Fordham, and his work looks at vaccines and social networks and how we can use information about people's everyday contacts to keep disease in check. A little later on the show, saying goodbye to one of the Bronx's most high-flown residents. But first, Troy Tacey joined me earlier this week in our studios. Troy Tacey, thanks for talking with me this morning. Uh, Thanks for having me. So tell me, what is so interesting about vaccines? Vaccines are are interesting from, I think, a, a number of different perspectives. Usually people think about a vaccination as... You know, something to do with biology and medicine. Um, but from an economic perspective, uh, a vaccine is actually a part of a sort of a traditional problem that economists call uh, an externality problem for the following reason. Um, most likely, if someone is, is thinking about getting vaccinated for something like uh, the flu, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to get my flu shot and get the poke in the arm so that I can stop myself from getting the flu. But from a social point of view, the biggest reason why someone might want to get a vaccination is that if I get my flu shot and it's effective, everybody that I come in contact with is given some benefits from the fact that I get influenza. So someone takes an individual decision to protect themselves, and that actually extends benefits to everyone in the population. Traditionally, epidemiology has sort of been based around the idea that any person is just as likely to bump into any other person as, well, as you or me or whatever, that everything's pretty much equal with that. But you say that that really doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, True. And and we're not the first ones to make this point, but it's sort of a, a point that epidemiologists have been coming to for the last 15 or 20 years that epidemiology previously was thought of as sort of a a gas molecule type model, where if you think about all of the air molecules in this room, you know, over time, any one molecule is equally likely to bump into any other air molecule that's in the room. But that's not the way that that we live our lives, right? We um, come to work and see the same people every day. We see our family members every day. Uh, We maybe commute um, at the same times as other people, so we're much more likely to Uh, run into those people. And with um, an infectious disease like influenza um, or SARS of a few years ago, um, anytime you come in, you know, relatively close contact, two or three feet from someone, there's a possibility that you can become uh, infected with the disease that that person may be carrying. So epidemiologists, as well as, um, you know, physicists and economists and other people that are studying epidemics have sort of come around to this viewpoint of of studying epidemics from a social network perspective, where you take into account the fact that people are segregated by race and class and uh, income, by where they live, uh, by their families, um, and sort of trying to incorporate um, these ideas into their, um, their models of the spread of infectious diseases. What kinds of adjustments do you make for that? 
Well, what you really have to do is actually build into your models the, the things that I've mentioned. Um, so in the work that we're doing, um, we're, we're studying the spread of infectious diseases in hospitals. And we uh, received uh, some grants to actually go out and uh, follow around healthcare workers in uh, a large university hospital, the, particularly the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, and uh, hire a team of research assistants to literally you know, shadow a sample of healthcare workers around the hospital every day and actually look at who they interacted with, uh, count the time intervals that they interacted with different uh, people, so that we can have a, a much better understanding of how people uh, actually interact in a hospital setting. When you did do this, who did you find were sort of the the hubs of this? I guess the Kevin Bacon's of the hospital yeah, world. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a perfect analogy. So the um, you know one of the um, when I when I teach uh, social network theory in my class, uh, we do you know I use the Kevin Bacon website from the University of Virginia. I think it's called the Oracle of Bacon, right? To sort of see who's the the center of the Hollywood network, but the center of of the hospital um, network. There's two groups that really stand out above the others. Uh, one is the clerks. Um, that work at the hospital, and the other one is um, are the social workers, and the clerks are probably the, the most obvious one once once you think about it for a while. So the the clerks sort of sit at a location in a hospital, uh, in a given ward, and almost everybody in the hospital uh, from different classes of workers comes uh, to these clerks throughout the day. Physicians come to visit them, nurses come to visit them, patients' families come to visit them. The Food service people come to find them to find out what rooms certain patients are in and all these different things. So they're really the nexus of the entire hospital. They're sort of, you know, the place where all the information feeds through. And so people come to them and provide them information, get information from them, and then uh, leave to, you know, go on about their day and contact other people in the hospital. So one of the, you know, interesting things that, that we found was that if you want to control the spread of an infectious disease in a hospital, you really need to start actually with these unit clerks. And they're actually a group that has been ignored in past sort of uh, vaccine campaigns. So when the um, influenza vaccine shortage happened a few years ago, it was argued in many hospitals that uh, unit clerks should actually be excluded from being vaccinated. But our work sort of shows that that was or could have been you know, a very, very poor um, choice. So you, and I think this is fairly common among people who do work on epidemiology, you look a lot at the flu. Why is the flu such a big thing in this study? Our project got started off uh, when uh, Phil Polgreen, who's a, a friend of mine from graduate school, sort of came to me. He knew that I uh, did some work in social networks, and he was particularly interested in looking at the spread of influenza uh, in hospitals. And the big reason that he was interested in influenza was that uh, influenza, sort of unknown, I think, in the general population, uh, is actually a, a huge problem in the U.S. as well as across the world. Um, it causes, uh, according to the CDC, uh, somewhere between thirty and 40,000 deaths each year. And the CDC has also recommended that uh, all healthcare workers be vaccinated every year, but only a quarter to a third of healthcare workers actually get vaccinated. And that's really unfortunate because if you think about the time it takes for someone to get in, in to get their flu shot every year, the fact that so few people actually get them is is really sad because it's it's a very effective vaccine. We could prevent most of those uh, thirty to forty thousand deaths if you know somewhere around a half to three quarters of the population actually got their flu shots. Traditionally, how have decisions been made about who gets vaccines or who gets encouraged to be vaccinated against things? In the vaccine shortage of a few years ago, the, the primary 
uh, sort of focal point of, of the, the vaccine priorities was given to people with patient contacts. So people like um, physicians, floor nurses, um, things of that nature. But again, you know, what we find is that um, a lot of the people that have primary patient care responsibilities in hospitals aren't the nexus of the hospital or aren't the, as you referred to earlier, they aren't the Kevin Bacons of the hospital that, that really contribute a lot to the spread of infectious diseases in the hospital. Again, because, you know, they're spending time with, say, if it's a physician, spending time with other physicians or with patients and not interacting with, with all the other groups in the hospital. So they really don't contribute that much necessarily to, to the spread of an infectious disease. I had heard that, um, I, I guess it was during the last outbreak of something that people were terrified about and getting vaccinated against, the idea that people tended to favor the idea of having vulnerable populations be vaccinated, but that actually, in terms of the epidemic spreading, the best thing to do is to actually vaccinate people who have tons and tons of social contacts. Yeah, it can be. It depends a a little bit on, well, not a little bit, it depends a lot on the specific disease that you're looking at. But there was a a very interesting recent study by uh, Lauren Ansel Myers and some of her colleagues at the University of Texas. And they were uh, also studying the spread of influenza. And we usually think that the people that are most likely to die from influenza or be infected and have complications from influenza are the elderly population. And the question is, um, you know, should we spend a lot of our resources in vaccinating the people most likely to be affected by the disease? Or should we concentrate our efforts in other groups in the population that are most likely to spread the disease? And in some cases, um, as long as the the level of transmission is low enough, you can more effectively protect the vulnerable populations by uh, vaccinating other people. So things like school children, uh, college students um, that live close quarters that tend to be, again, these hubs in the population. But if the disease is too easily transmitted, so if the, the level of transmission is too high, what you find is that um, you actually need to vaccinate the people that are, are most likely to be affected by the disease or to die from the disease or have complications. And the reason is that if the level of transmission is too high, then you can't really control the epidemic. It's going to spread everywhere anyway. So you can't sort of cut it off by looking at these sort of hubs of the social network. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Our show this morning may cause some injection site pain and itching because today we are talking about vaccines. In a few minutes, we say goodbye to one of the Bronx's beloved red-tailed hawks. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Fordham economist Troy Tacey. Tell me about how an epidemic works when it is when it does happen. To some degree, it's it's almost like uh, if if you think back to biology class and talking about breeding rabbits or something, right? So you think about two rabbits uh, get together and they have little rabbits, right? Um, if those rabbits have more than one offspring on average, then the population size is going to grow. If they have less than one offspring on average, then the population size is going to decrease. So with an epidemic, what you're really concerned about is the number of secondary transmissions uh, that each person infected creates in the population. So that if I get infected with influenza, if on average I infect uh, less than one person, then that disease is going to die out over time and it will die out relatively quickly. On the other hand, if if I infect more than one person, then I'm creating um, a larger and larger epidemic over time, right? So it's like I infect two people, those two people each infect 
two more people, so we're up to eight, and then we're up to 16, and then we're up to 64, so the epidemic grows really, really quickly. So from uh, an epidemiologist perspective and a public health perspective, what you want to do is try to limit these secondary infections so that everybody that becomes infected is uh, only having a, a very small number of these secondary infections so that the disease effectively dies out of its own accord. And when there's something like a vaccine available, the, the, another interesting thing is that you don't have to have everybody in the population uh, vaccinated in order to control that epidemic. So for instance, if you think uh, about a closed population, so suppose we're in the U.S. and we have, uh, there's you know, a large number of people, um, suppose that you're able to vaccinate everybody except for one last person for influenza. It wouldn't make any sense to vaccinate that last person because there would be no one that could infect that last person. Okay, so then you should probably not infect the last person or the second to last person or the third to last person, etc. And there's actually sort of a, a threshold um, at which uh, you reach something called herd immunity, where if you um, vaccinate enough people in the population, then effectively everybody or the entire herd is protected from this epidemic. And it's currently estimated that if you could get somewhere around 50, 60, 70 percent of the uh, U.S. population to get their flu shots, that essentially influenza, uh, as long as the vaccine was effective, there would essentially be no influenza floating around, um, just because you would uh, be able to completely stop the epidemic. So this research that you have done in hospitals, what in sort of a larger picture has it told you about the way that we choose to administer vaccines today? Well, I think overall we're, we're doing a pretty good job. So if, if you look at the recommendations for the recent uh, priority list for the swine flu vaccinations, um, you know, I, I think that they've got the right people on the list. Um, when you think about vaccinations, there's, there's really three things that make up that externality, uh, that economic externality that I was talking about earlier. One is uh, the likelihood that people get sick. Uh, themselves, so that sort of the probability of infection. Um, the second thing is you know, the cost to uh, an individual and to society of someone becoming infected. And third, uh, the number of uh, secondary or additional infections that people create in society. So if you look at um, you know, the, the sort of top five groups that um, are going to receive priority for the upcoming uh, swine flu vaccine, the first big group was pregnant women, right? So they're on the list because the cost to pregnant women is very large. Um, there's a higher than average probability of death for pregnant women than other people in the population. The other thing that, you know, that they're targeting are people like caretakers of young children. So that's got some um, feel for the secondary infection, right? So you're vaccinating parents and caregivers uh, to protect children. So that's sort of taking into account some secondary infections. They're also targeting uh, school-age children and college-age adults because they're the traditional sort of hubs of the spread of infectious diseases. They are, you know, are in close quarters with large numbers of other people, 30 or 40 other students throughout the course of a day, and then they sort of are sent off to other places throughout cities and communities to come in contact with parents who then come in contact with all the other people that they come in contact with during the course of their day. Older people are also being prioritized, and people with other sort of chronic illnesses, again, sort of to specifically protect those people. And then the other group that is receiving priority are the healthcare workers. And this is where sort of the, the social cost uh, mentality comes in to some extent, because, you know, if there is a widespread epidemic, you want to 
have some people around that can take care of the people that get sick, as well as um, more from the perspective of our research, healthcare workers are also people um, that are likely to come in contact with other infected people, right? So healthcare workers that work in hospitals are likely to come in contact with other infected people. If they uh, become infected, epidemics can start in hospitals uh, that can be very large. That's, uh, for instance, if you look at the SARS epidemic in Toronto a few years ago, it's uh, widely believed that SARS in Toronto originated through hospitals. So you want to be able to sort of cut off those epidemics within the hospital so that they don't spread to the population at large. And I think what our work does is it really sort of hits on this last point where um, if you're worried about these hospital epidemics, you want to make sure that you don't neglect uh, the groups that are really important in the hospitals, right? So traditionally, you would think about nurses, physicians that have direct patient care responsibilities. But if you're worried about epidemics in hospitals, you also have to get the people that are, are the true hubs within the hospital. One more question. I'll close with this. As we do prepare to go through the big and no doubt to be very controversial process of starting to inoculate people against the swine flu. What should we be keeping in mind from a public policy perspective? Well, I think there are several things. Um, let me give as an example the um, the regular influenza vaccinations, right? So we, we typically have this, this view that if we get our flu shot every year, that we're protected against getting the flu. So you get a lot of people that go out and, you know, they get their flu shots and uh, all of a sudden, you know, maybe they get something that they think is the flu, but it's actually food poisoning. So they end up, you know, in their bathroom vomiting for two days or something. And you hear people say, you know, I haven't got my flu shot in five years. I got a flu shot this year and I've never been sicker. I'm, I'm never getting a flu shot again. So there tend to be things that happen to us over the course of time that we think might be correlated with other things that really don't have any basis for these correlations, right? So um, I think one of the reasons why people don't tend to get their flu shots is they think, you know, oh, it wasn't that effective. I got sick last year even though I got my flu shot. So I think one of the things that's, that's sure to arise is people are going to get the f- swine flu vaccine. Some things are going to happen to them. And they may themselves sort of feel that, you know, these things that happen to them, maybe they get sick, maybe something happens. Um, They may think that it's caused by the swine flu. And so I think that public figures uh, in our country and throughout the world need to do a good job of, of educating the population on what the true dangers are and what the true dangers aren't. Yeah, as well as you know the, the scientists and the medical researchers that are designing these vaccines, we need to make sure that they're producing safe vaccines so that you know there aren't bad side effects from people getting the swine flu vaccine. And there needs to be you know a, a lot of honesty on, on the part of the scientists and uh, the public figures to make sure that, that the public is educated that any potential dangers that are associated with the vaccine are known and that they're you know, quick to um, address any potential concerns that arise in the public uh, about dangers that may be mythical that arise from these vaccines. I do want to ask you one more question, actually. I know you're not an MD, but maybe you're in a position to answer this. There's been, over the last few years, I've noticed, and I'm sure that you've noticed too, a tremendous sort of hostility developing in, in certain camps toward the idea of vaccination, especially of children. What do you make of all that? I think it's really unfortunate because a lot of that hostility, I think, um, arises out of people of my generation that, you know, remember 
the swine flu uh, vaccine when I was a child uh, from 1976. And there were some pretty serious complications that arose um, from the swine flu vaccine and and a fair number of people when that was distributed uh, back in 1976. And I think because of that, there's been suspicion of of other vaccines that have been proved to be very safe. So there's still, I think, a, a large number of people out there that are um, have concerns about the flu vaccine and that it could do um, more harm than good for their children. So they don't have their children vaccinated. They themselves don't get vaccinated. And again, um, you know, that causes influenza to propagate throughout the country and throughout the world. And you see sort of the same thing in, in other things like the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, um, as well as other vaccines that parents, um, they have good intentions. Um, they're trying to protect their children. But in fact, by people sort of opting out of these vaccines uh, when legally possible in some cases and sending their children to schools, they're actually putting both their children and everyone else's children potentially in harm's way by um, not trusting the vaccine. And it's it's really a, a public relations problem for, for the health community because what they need to do is do a better job of, of somehow reassuring these parents that the vaccines are safe, that their children will be protected, uh, that there aren't problems with these vaccines. But of course, there's there's an incentive problem for the parents as well, because even if um, they get fully convinced that this vaccine is 99.99% safe, they may be thinking, okay, well, if everyone else thinks it's safe, then if everyone else uh, vaccinates their children and I don't vaccinate mine, then that's okay, because if everyone else is vaccinated, my child can't get sick from anyone else's child. But then if everyone thinks that way, then you end up with no one getting vaccinated. So there's sort of this this bad spiral that can occur. So what the population really needs is is more trust um, in the public health officials. And, and the public health officials need to earn that trust as well, of course. Well, Troy Tacey is an associate professor of economics at Fordham. Troy, thanks so much for coming in and talking to me about vaccines. Well, thank you for having me today. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's at 7.30. But first, for the last several years, people who love birds and others who just enjoy looking up now and then have noticed that the city's avian life is not entirely dominated by pigeons, sparrows, and huge Canada geese. You've likely heard of Pale Male and Lola, the red-tailed hawk couple that nests in a building near Central Park, and they are far from the only hawk couple in the city— In fact, for the last several years, we've had our own pair of red-tailed hawks hunting, nesting, and procreating right near our studios on Fordham's Rose Hill campus up here in the Bronx. That was until last week, when the male, known as Hawkeye, abruptly fell out of a tree on campus. Hawkeye was picked up, in fact, you might have seen that on the news, and he was taken to the vet. But sadly, Hawkeye died. I spoke earlier this week with Fordham political scientist and avid birder Richard Fleischer about Hawkeye and his mate, Rose Hill. And although you're finding out beforehand, I didn't know that Hawkeye had passed over to the land of plentiful fat rodents until the middle of our conversation. Richard, thanks so much for talking with me. Uh, It's my pleasure, Nora. So tell me the story of Hawkeye and Rose Hill. Well, first discovered Hawkeye and Rose in 2005, hawks showed up on campus, and they nested in a tree uh, outside of the library. The following year, in 2006, they moved and built their nest 
on the ledge of Colin Tall. It's a long, flat ledge, and they, they nested there and produced three offspring. They came back 2007 and again in 2008. And then this past year, they abandoned that nest, I think in part because of the construction on campus, and moved across the street and found a very similar building to build a nest on and successfully produced three fledglings over at the uh, New York Botanical Gardens. So how did these hawks come to nest on Fordham's campus? And I guess you've already kind of answered this, but why would they move to the Botanical Garden? We suspect that earlier, in 2004, I believe, there had been a nesting pair of red tails on the fire escape on a building in the grand, on the Grand Concourse. Maybe it was even 2003. And the New York Department of Environmental Conservation was called to remove the nest. And it was shortly after that that the hawks started appearing on campus. Hawks tend to have a, you know, somewhat of a wide hunting territory, so it's not inconceivable that the move from the Grand Concourse over to the Fordham campus was not even that far of a stretch. The campus has lots of open green space. There's an abundant supply of pigeons, squirrels, and other prey for the birds to feast on. And so the ledge they picked was a very protected nest for their young. So it had lots going for it. Are there a lot of hawks around this part of the Bronx? can't say that there's a lot around this part of the Bronx. We know that there was, in Van Cortlandt Park, a pair of uh, red tails for a while. I see red tails as I drive down Pelham Parkway from uh, the Hutch to campus. There are other red tails in the, the Bronx. And, of course, if we go Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, Long Island, Westchester, there are a large number of of red-tailed hawks, and they've proven to be quite adaptable. They habituate to to people quite well, and compared to the uh, red-tails that are outside of, you know, more densely populated areas who uh, hunt in fields and look for voles and things of that sort, urban red hawks have adjusted their diet to accommodate what kind of prey is available. In, in cities. Now, that's not always good for the, the hawks, as we learned last week. I don't know if you know, Nora, but, but Hawkeye, the male, took ill and has died. Oh, no, I, I didn't know. Uh, yeah, it was an incident on campus last week. I think it was on Thursday. He simply fell out of a tree, and campus security wound up calling the New York Police Department and some annual rescuers, and they took them to a, an annual uh, to an animal rehab hospital, and he died overnight. And the best guess, all the symptoms, is that he died of rodent poisoning. When you're out in the country and you're hunting voles in an open farm field, that's something you don't have to worry about. And if it turns out that it was rat poisoning that that Hawkeye died from, this is not the first of urban red tails have been poisoned. Uh, inadvertently, what happens is they catch a rat, the rat has ingested a poison, and the poison gets transferred to them, and they can't sustain the, the amount of poison, and the end result is frequently death.
So they have um, the three babies, right, that are um, chicks that have fledged, and there's Rose Hill. What's going to happen to them now? This year's fledglings won't be much affected. There's, there's at least one that's still hanging around the, the area. I see it on campus all the time, and on the incident this past Thursday, uh, when the police tried to get close to uh, Hawkeye, uh, the female Rose and one of the, the recent fledglings became quite protective of him, and they made it very, very difficult for the police to even get close. So we know there's one of the fledglings around, but that, that, won't, that wouldn't have lasted long anyway. Uh, hawks, you know, typical of, of birds and, and raptors in particular, don't tolerate their young staying in their area very long. I mean, so as soon as the hawks or the baby hawks are old enough to fend for themselves, the expectation and the behavior would be that they would find their own, their own territory. So then would the expectation be that for the next season, Rose Hill will find a different mate? We hope. Whether, you know, it, it, whether she finds a mate in time for next year, that would, be, that would be great. She's clearly still of prime breeding age, given the number of, of chicks she produces and, and the health of the chicks. I assume she's still very much in prime breeding uh, age, and I would hope that she'd be able to attract another mate uh, and continue to nest on campus. I say that a bit selfishly, but that would also be great for, for her. And we know that, that while hawks are monogamous, it's quite common for something to happen to one of the pair and for the other one to wind up taking another mate. Well, a great romance cut short by rat poison. Richard Fleischer, thanks so much. My pleasure, Nora. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. You can find our podcast at WFUV.org or listen to past shows in our audio archives. You can also email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.